rather you live your life in vanity You traded all your hopes and dreams for insanity this is the Restorative Justice Ministry of the Diocese of Austin. We're speaking with Renee Brown today, Director of Counseling Services for Catholic Charities of Central Texas, along with Deacon Ronnie Lastavica, our Coordinator of Pastoral Care for the Restorative Justice Ministry in the Gatesville region, and myself, Father Harry Dean, a priest of the Diocese of Austin in the Restorative Justice Ministry. And we're in our third session of five, Addressing Trauma and Sexual Abuse. And today, Renee, I want to ask you first off, how does trauma affect a person emotionally, and what does it mean to be emotionally dysregulated? And help me with that last word, because that looked like kind of a technical word on the, on the piece of paper there. You know, so what does it mean to be emotionally dysregulated? Um, so dysregulation, I'm, I'm reading this definition for all of us. Thank you. You're going to explain it way better than me. Um Dysregulation, also known as emotional dysregulation, refers to a poor ability to manage emotional responses or to keep them within acceptable range of typical emotional reactions. So this can refer to a wide range of emotions, including sadness, anger, irritability, and frustration. So... We've seen those people um, in the store, right? You see somebody and they're like going off on somebody, you know, you should have done this and you didn't check my food out right and you're charging me too much and they're just complaining and going off and they're yelling, maybe cussing, right? That's emotional dysregulation. Uh, often I'll have people tell me, no, I was standing up for myself or what? No, you can stand up for yourself without yelling, cussing and being out of control. So when it's this high level of irritability and people are not in control of their emotions. And it, um, this other part that I looked up, it's um, you're reacting, right? It's reactive. It's not like proactive and it's not being um, regulated. It means you're probably being reactive in nature as well. And they kind of tied into being maybe aggressive um, um, and being angry. Often people will uh, kind of confuse assertive and aggressive, very different things. So that is emotional dysregulation. And if I'm dis emotionally <clears throat> dysregulated, and that's really all I've known, mm -hmm. I can begin to believe that that's normal. And that when people criticize me for it or say that, hey, what's wrong with you? You look back and say, there's nothing wrong with mm -hmm. me. So what am I supposed to do with that? So hopefully what somebody would do with that is to sit in self-reflection, right? And, you know, maybe look around at others who maybe behave a little differently when they're upset with things. Or maybe turn to your, your Bible to learn how to maybe handle some things. You know, ask yourself, what would Jesus do? Because I don't think Jesus is going to be standing up yelling and screaming and cussing at people because something's not working out to the way that they want it. Um, but you're exactly right. If you grew up in this, you know, environment and this is all you've ever seen is when things aren't going my way or I need to make a point and the people that I've seen are yelling and cussing and, you know, maybe their fingers waving in the air and, you know, all this business, you know, or they kind of 
I don't know how to explain it, kind of puff out their chest, you know, kind of bow up a little bit. Um, you know, that you're dysregulated when you're doing all of that. And often when I'm doing inner child work with people, this must seem a little off topic, but we kind of talk about those things, right? Um, sometimes because you grew up with that and that's what you've seen and that's what you've learned, it's a learned behavior and there's comfort in that. It doesn't mean it's right, right? It doesn't mean it's healthy for you. It doesn't mean it's healthy in your relationships with others either. And so, you know, looking at it from maybe an inner child perspective of, hmm, if I'm out of control like this, maybe it's that inner child in me too, not adults. Adults know how to, uh, a regulated adult, let me clarify, a regulated adult, adult that has control of their emotions, can certainly get a point across to somebody in a direct manner without cussing and screaming and being out of control. And so, so that's just something to consider. Mm-hmm. Renee, what is traumatic stress and how is a person's behavior affected by traumatic stress? So traumatic stress is really kind of similar to post-traumatic stress. I mean, and we're going to talk more about a post-traumatic stress syndrome uh, disorder in our next segment, but Traumatic stress is brought on by trauma, and it can be derived out of some of those emotional pieces, right? So when a person has experienced trauma, you know, and they're um, at that level of maybe some high anxiety, um, maybe they're experiencing some of that anger and that fear, they they really kind of out of control, and maybe they feel like they're losing it sometimes, Um Traumatic stress comes out of that, you know, some of the high emotion, being dysregulated, um, maybe um, in the in our earlier um, segment where we talked about all those immediate and delayed responses emotionally, um, that will play into traumatic into traumatic stress. And so some other things that you'll see in traumatic stress Um, Just some of the behavioral pieces that a person may see is um, you may see people being avoidant. Um, You may uh, observe people may be self-medicating, right? Because they need something. They're trying to um, maintain that stress. They're trying to de-stress from traumatic stress, so to speak. And so they may become avoidant of certain situations. They may be avoidant of certain people. Um, They may be self-medicating through alcohol or drug use, smoking, even overeating. Um, They may become impulsive where they're developing some high risk, um, you know, behaviors. I think about um, myself sometimes with this in that for a while, my car could be a weapon, Like when I was really upset or angry, I might get into my car and be, you know, I like back out of the driveway real fast and take off down the street, you know. And so it was an impulsive piece due to traumatic stress and being emotional that I would do those kind of things. Um, It could also be um, trying to gain control over experiences or over other people um, or maybe being aggressive to other people, I mean, sometimes those things, when we feel like we can kind of dominate somebody and we have control over somebody else, it, it for us gives us this sense of control in ourself. And um, 
also with the being, you know, aggressive. If I can be aggressive with you, I may feel less stressed myself because I feel like I'm being assertive, like we talked about a minute ago, but maybe I'm really being aggressive. And then some other kind of behavioral reactions could also be, um, you know, that they could be very upset because they cannot control people in the environment. And so to decrease that stress, I'm going to try to control others. And for for people who have children, what will often happen is children are easy prey, right? So if I'm experiencing traumatic stress and I feel like I'm out of control, if I can control my children, and this wouldn't probably be what I'm talking about healthy means of, because we want to teach children to be in control of self. Like if I have all this control and how am I getting this control? That could be damaging and it's a false sense of control. Some other things that people will do are kind of these reenactments, which is um, it's kind of like they're reenacting maybe something that's happened to them. And that sounds a little strange, but for example, there are those some people who may be in a car accident, right? And maybe they were driving too fast when they had the accident, but they're going to go out and drive fast again, you know? Um, so they kind of reenact some things from trauma, are people who have been, um, it's really interesting because people who've been in domestic violence relationships, it often takes people seven domestic revi- uh, domestic violence relationships to get <clears throat> that this is not working, right? So it's kind of like I'll be in a domestic violence relationship, so I know all the, you know, what it looks like. I know the red flags. I know who this person is. But I'm going to reenact it with the next person and the next person and the next person. So those reenactments. And then sometimes people will get involved in maybe some self-harm, self-destructive behavior. So when we think of self-harm, it could be somebody that's, you know, cutting, cutters, um, you know, um, people who will abuse drugs, uh, people with eating disorders, Um, All of those are part of that self-harm because if you're using substances, especially illegal substances, you know that that's hurting your body. That, you know, you are tearing down your body when you're putting, you know, heroin in your body or cocaine. Um, Or, you know, if you have an eating disorder where you'll eat and then you're making yourself throw up. So there's all sorts of ways that people will um, try to cope with traumatic stress and They can become very self-destructive or, you know, in in the form of self-harm. And a lot of that comes from this feeling of I'm damaged. So what does it matter? You know, it becomes a a coping. On this next question, I I wanted to change it up a little bit. It's what is the prevalence and link between substance abuse and trauma? Another way I'd want to put it and just see if if this is in the ballpark. Can a person train themselves with substance abuse to um, handle their trauma. In other words, can I, I become so used to using, uh, uh, abusing a substance of one kind or another that I've now kind of taught myself that this is the way you're supposed to deal with trauma? Um, mm-hmm. and, and so is that part of that prevalence and link uh, as well? Yeah, I think so. You know, um, people will fool themselves, right? People trick themselves. So, you know, if you've experienced trauma and then you start using drugs or alcohol to cope with it, then you kind of may believe that, oh, this is how I cope with 
trauma and the triggers and the flashbacks. But it's not really a coping as much as I'm it's a numbing. Right. And it's a way of kind of pushing it down and not dealing with it, because what happens is the drugs and the alcohol mask everything that you feel. It masks those feelings that have to be acknowledged, right? When I'm talking to clients and we're talking about traumatic events and and such, I always tell them that trauma is like the the best way to describe counseling and trauma is throwing up. So if you've ever had a stomach ache and you throw up and you feel a little better and then you throw up again and you feel a little better, and if you throw up a few times, like you start feeling really good. It's the same way with trauma. The more you talk about it, actually, the better you'll feel. And that seems strange. But if I'm using drugs, I'm masking all that. And I'm probably I'm not going to say, oh, this ha- I was raped. I was raped repeatedly. I was sexually abused as a kid because I think drugs and alcohol, too, we have that propendency to think that we're powerful, right? Like I've got this behind me as well, and it's masking so much. So trauma um, and substance abuse typically go hand in hand. And a lot of it comes out of this thing of, you know, people want to feel better. And so if I get high, you know, I feel better when, you know, I'm high. If I've smoked some weed or whatever I did, if I drink a few beers and I'm feeling kind of calmer, right? So it's this um, wanting out of a want to feel better. And what people don't realize is they're, they're really making it worse because you're not going in and tackling the trauma. You're just masking it, your emotions, your pushing things down and you're not dealing with it. Um, People will also try to numb, right? I want to escape. I want to escape the pain. I want to numb from it. I want to pretend like it didn't happen. Um, And people often, I think drugs and alcohol, like they don't feel like they have anybody to talk to. And so they think their friends and family may not understand. So um, for people who've been raped, Um, they may feel like somebody at home won't understand or their friends wouldn't understand them. If they were sexually abused as children, that could be something they're still carrying with them. And they may not feel safe to talk about that with family or friends, right? And so drugs are going to help me escape all of that that happened. And people will trick themselves and think that they dealt with it when they didn't. Um, Some other things, um, when people lack an effective group, right, Um, If you don't have a group around you of friends and family um, that are supportive, you know, you may turn to alcohol and drugs, you know, to feel better and get relief in some way. Also, um, kind of some confusion about maybe what you experienced in trauma, because if you lie to yourself like, well, you know, he didn't mean to hit me, you know, he really loves me. Or, you know, I was raped, but if I wouldn't have been wearing that short skirt or, you know, if I wasn't in prison right now, this wouldn't have happened. So that confusion. And so then we use drugs and alcohol to cope with the confusion and not wanting to really look at situations. And then, of course, this kind of talks about the warning signs of substance abuse. But I think many times people know them. But, you know, when you're borrowing money, if somebody's borrowing money and taking money and valuables, They're often, you know, wanting substances, Um, you know, if they're performing poorly at work, at school, there could be some substance abuse. People who drive under the influence, maybe they're having legal problems. Um, Those are all things that can be associated with somebody that's using substances. And this may have came about after a traumatic experience. 
This could also be the person who's been using drugs and alcohol since they are 14 years old because they have no coping skills. And so this is this was their coping skill. So in every traumatic event, that is their turn to. And then what happens for some people, you may start off using weed as a way to cope, a way to chill out. You know, you have anxiety, you've had some trauma, but then after a while, that weed's not going to work. So then you have to up the ante, right? And then you're using something different. You know, maybe you're throwing in some ecstasy or some cocaine or whatever. And really, all you're doing is is masking the trauma and not going head first into it and working through it. In a similar way, just one follow-up question, in a similar way to as you start to ratchet up a chemical substance, uh, whether it's more alcohol or a different form of drug, is is there a limit to um, the benefit of revisiting a traumatic experience and talking about it? I mean, you said earlier that it's good to do that. Mm-hmm. Been hearing some things out out in the world that that suggest that maybe there is a limit to that. Mm-hmm. Is that something that's in your your therapy world as well? Oh, sure. So. If you want to talk about it, I mean, that's a great thing, but there are some people who just can't go there. And one of the the tricky things for like a counselor is that we don't want to ever implant something accidentally, right? Like we don't want to misconstrue anything. We don't want to plant seeds of maybe of how something happened. I believe that uh, it's it, talking about trauma too is unique to the person, Right. So each person that comes in, maybe they're going to talk about it in a different way. So I've had people come into counseling before, and they'll be very direct and want to talk about it. I'll have other piece, people that give me little bits and pieces, and maybe we're going to work on this for quite a while. And then it's kind of too like, what are you going to do with the trauma, right? So for the person, for example, that's been sexually abused or they were sexually abused as a child, I was just having this conversation with a, one of our therapists the other day is like, do they tell or do they don't tell? And for me, that's an individual thing. So meaning like if you were um, sexually assaulted as a kid, but you never told anybody, right? And now you're 40 and you've never told anybody you were sexually abused. Do you tell or do you not tell your parents? This is what came up. And for me, it's about the individual. What helps them in their healing process? And then helping that client know what are you wanting out of this? So let's say I'm a 40-year-old and I've never told anybody that I was sexually abused, but I want to tell my mom that I was sexually abused. You have to know your mom may not give you whatever you're wanting, right? So if you're wanting some kind of acknowledgement, if you're wanting sympathy, if you're wanting, you know, validation. Or apology. An apology, you may not get that. So you have to know that up front before you go any further. And then it's allowing that client, that patient to decide, okay, what do I want to do from here? Because maybe I don't want to talk to my parent about it. So maybe it's just going to be between me and my therapist, or maybe I'll figure out a way to share with my friends to get that support that I need. And so often, you know, working with clients, trauma is is challenging because it's, and then how much do I talk about? right? I've had some clients come in and maybe they need to just tell me the bits and pieces and they felt relief in that and they could feel healing in that where other people need to tell you the whole story of it and they might need to tell you the whole story more than once. I had a client one time whose son died of cancer. He was seven and she started from his birth. We, she told me everything that happened in his, his cancer treatment and told me everything to the minute I think that that child 
passed away. And that's what she needed from therapy was to share all of it. And it was one time. She told me the story one time, and that's all she needed. So it's very indicative to the person and what they're going to need. Renee, earlier you spoke about avoidance. I'd like to ask you, what role does avoidance have with traumatic stress? So avoidance plays a big part, actually, in traumatic stress um, because it kind of coincides with um, anxiety and anxiety symptoms. People don't want to feel anxious, right? We don't want to feel nervous and we don't want to feel that we're on this hyper arousal maybe or we're being hypervigilant. And so sometimes what will happen is people will avoid talking about like their emotions. They don't want to talk about circumstances or unpleasant memories. And often for people who've lived through abusive, uh, like sexual abuse as a child or or a rape victim, a victim of rape, um, avoidance is just so much easier because I don't want to feel all that again. I don't want to feel the circumstances of all of it. I don't want to feel the anxiety that comes from this. Um, And people actually, and I like the way they state it, so I'm going to read it. Avoidance can be adaptive Right. So people kind of use it as an adaptive feature to to maintain avoidance. It's a behavioral pattern that reinforces perceived danger without testing its validity. Right. So what happens if I continually avoid something because I don't want to be in danger? It's this perceived danger, but there may not be danger at all. There may not even be danger, but I'm avoiding certain things because I'm in fear of danger or repercussions or whatever it may be. And so avoidance has a a huge place in uh, trauma and the way that people react. And this says for many individuals who have had traumatic stress reactions, avoidance is actually very commonplace. Um, For example, and this gives a great example, a person may drive five miles longer to avoid the road where he or she had an accident. So when our house burned down in 2008, I, for the longest, could not drive down that street. You know, I just couldn't. My kids would. They missed our house and everything. But even when a new house was built, we didn't live there. But I just could not look at that, you know. Um, and so that av- it could be avoidance in that way. I'm going to avoid this person. I'm going to avoid this thing. I'm going to avoid this place um, because I don't want to deal with with what happened to me because I don't want to experience the anxiety again is what it's really about. I don't want to experience anxiety. I don't want to feel bad about it. I want to, and, and it gives like this, um, if I avoid it, it gives me this false sense of control too, right? So if I'm avoiding all of this, it helps me to feel like I'm in better uh, control of the situation, which isn't true. We've talked a lot about what not to do with trauma. Um, let's take a swing at uh, what we can do for trauma. What are right. order to just provide some hope for our trauma survivors? What are some resilient responses to trauma? And so, I want to take a, a few minutes to you know kind of let everybody know out there that this the trauma is a very challenging subject. And if you're a survivor of domestic violence, of rape, of uh, Childhood sexual abuse, you know, if you're a military personnel right now listening and you've been in combat, you know, and things have happened or incarcerated person that maybe has been, you know, attacked, beaten, raped, 
you know, while incarcerated. These, this is a very challenging topic of trauma. And so I don't want anybody to walk away feeling like I'm trying to give therapy, but I want to encourage you to get therapy if it's available to you. And so in some of these um, resiliency pieces, there's going to be maybe some coping things that you can do. And um, But I would just encourage you to, if you have um, an opportunity to get with the therapist, to please do that. But some um, some resilient responses to trauma that that they've noticed several people get involved in or the way that they've responded is you will see that some people will increase their bonding with family and community, right? So if, if I would say if you're incarcerated and maybe there's a group going on, you know, in your prison that you feel like you could be safe in, that could be something to be a part of. If there's a class you could take, if there's a book study, I mean, I don't know what they have going on, Bible studies, whatever. If you feel like you can be safe there, then, you know, having those experiences where you can bond with people can be very helpful and be help with resiliency. Uh, also, um, trying to find purpose and meaning in your life, which is very, I think, challenging sometimes for those incarcerated, right? Because they're not really able to contribute in in maybe the world the way that they would want. So it's like, how can I find some meaning and some purpose while I'm incarcerated? And so for those persons maybe that have children, this could be a huge place where, you know, you're reaching out to your kiddos, writing letters, sending pictures, all those kind of things. And that can give you some purpose and connection as well. And then, you know, having a personal mission, Maybe your personal mission doesn't have to be outside of a prison wall. Your personal mission can be inside. Maybe your personal mission is to learn more about the Lord. Maybe your personal mission is to grow, grow closer to Jesus. And so that's something that you can focus on that's going to help you to become more resilient. And maybe revising your priorities. You know, if your priority has been you, 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 you for so long, maybe it's time to to change your priority. And maybe your priority is... <clears throat> how can I serve God? Or how do I how do I parent from afar, right? How do I maintain relationships with my children? And maybe changing your priorities is you're no longer number one priority. Maybe you're going to drop down to number three. Um, and then if you have a way to, you know, volunteer or if there's something charitable you can do. Um, I have shared before that my son's been incarcerated um, and he is— great about helping the other guys read like he is always you know so sad that so many people can't read and he's just an avid reader so he'll help people read like their documents or sometimes uh, if they're wanting to read a book he'll actually read out loud to the group right and that's his way to feel like he has purpose and that he's contributing and he's volunteering and he is being charitable in some way and so um resilience is such an important piece and the great thing about resilience too is it it helps you to become more confident it's going to help you to be more courageous and and maybe you know become a little bit fearless and so i love this definition um and this is from a different thing that i read and and sadly uh, i'm like where did i get this um but um it says resilience is the process of adapting well in the face of adversity trauma, tragedy, threats, or significant sources of stress, such as family, 
um, relationship problems, health problems, workplace problems. And so for me, too, that would speak to anybody that's incarcerated um, for military combat soldiers, right? Just in some tremendous challenging situations, um, maybe uh, traumas. But resiliency is that thing that just keeps you going when you're faced with adversity. And so if you can have some of those skills that we talked about before, developing some of those things um, is really going to help you be resilient. I want to clarify that resiliency is not really that thing of, oh, you just bounce back, right? That sounds contrite in some way. Well, we just need to bounce back. To me, resiliency is a building process, right? It is something that you are building within you to become resilient in traumatizing and adverse experiences. We will continue this discussion in our next session with Renee Brown, with the Director of Counseling Services for Catholic Charities of Central Texas, as we address trauma and sexual abuse uh, for those who are incarcerated and for for all of us out in in the, the world who may have been traumatized. And now may God bless you with his mercy, strengthen you with his love, and enable you to walk in charity and peace. Amen. Brother, if you walk with me, brother, 